If you have your copy of God's Word, open it with me to the book of Isaiah. And this morning, we're going to be in chapter 43. We're going to look at the first 13 verses. Next Sunday, we'll go back to our series in the Gospel of John. But this morning, it's Isaiah chapter 43, verses 1 through 13. While you're turning there, let me ask you a question by raising your hands. How many of you enjoy putting together jigsaw puzzles? Anybody? Okay, those hands you see around you, those are the most patient people you will ever meet in your life. You know, in a jigsaw puzzle, there are many different parts, depending on the puzzle, I guess. But one piece has a leaf, so you know that it is a tree. Another piece has part of a cloud, so you know that that is the sky. In a jigsaw puzzle, every piece is part of a bigger and different picture. And the puzzle is figuring out how all those pieces fit together. Well, likewise, there are many different pieces to the puzzle of life. For example, how we make, or how we spend money, how we relate to our family, how we determine what is right, what is wrong, how we go about our work. Most people go through life just trying to figure out how to put all of these together. And then one day somebody comes along and points out that there's a piece that is missing No matter how much money they make, no matter how successful they are at work, no matter how many other pieces of the puzzle they have in place, the picture is just incomplete. And then one day they discover that that missing piece is God. Now maybe for some of you, God is the missing piece in your life this morning. And if so, uh, praise the Lord, we're glad you're here. You came to the right place But let me tell you, there is something that is very wrong with this picture. You see, God does not want to be simply one piece of the puzzle of your life. As if your relationship with God has nothing to do with any of these other parts. There's a wonderful quote. I wish I knew who was the author of this quote. But years ago, someone said, a Christian is not someone who has Christ in his life. A Christian is someone for whom Christ is his life. And what a difference between the two. In other words, Jesus is more than just one piece of the puzzle for the child of God. He is that piece that defines and gives meaning to the entire picture. And without Jesus, none of the rest makes sense. I want to talk to you this morning about what I call the God-centered life. And this is when life, every piece, is about him. I believe that's what Isaiah is talking about in our passage this morning. Years ago, seven centuries before Christmas, God spoke through the prophet Isaiah and God was speaking to Israel, his covenant people, Israel. Now, we are not Israel. 
But in the New Testament, there are several times in which we are described as God's people, His covenant people. And so even though we are not Israel, uh, there are still lessons here and there are still applications that we're going to see that apply to our lives today. And there are five truths in particular that I want to point out, and I'm going to put these in the first person because I'm hoping we will take all of these personally. But for me to live the God-centered life, first of all, I need to recognize God's ownership of my life. I need to recognize God's ownership of my life. Now, the Israelites for whom these words were written were in exile. They were in exile because they had done great evil. They were in exile because they had turned away from God to serve other gods. Therefore, God judged them. And God allowed the Babylonians to come and conquer them and enslave them. We come to chapter 43 and people were so discouraged. They were wondering whether or not God had abandoned them completely. They questioned whether God still cared for them. And so here is God's response in verse 1. But now, thus says the Lord, who created you, O Jacob, And he who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by your name. You are mine. You'll notice four key verbs in that statement, four things that God had done for Israel. God says, I created you, I formed you, I redeemed you, and I called you. God created Israel when he turned Abraham into a great nation, just like he promised he would do. God formed Israel, giving Israel laws, giving Israel the promised land. God redeemed Israel, and we're going to see a few verses later exactly in what way God redeemed Israel in this context. And then God called Israel out from the other nations, making her a special people with a special purpose to bring the Messiah into the world. Now, Again, God is talking to Israel here, but everything he says in verse 1 applies to us as well. He is the Lord who created you. You are not an evolutionary accident. You were created intentionally by God in the image of God. God not only created you, he formed you You know how many different genetic combinations are possible in the human genome? It is the number four with three billion zeros after it. That is how many executive decisions God made when God formed you. No wonder David said, I am fearfully and wonderfully made. God created you and formed you and he redeemed you. But when God redeemed you, Christian brother, Christian sister. He paid a much higher price than what is referred to here. First Peter 1 says that we are redeemed not with corruptible things, but with the precious blood of Jesus, the lamb without blemish and without spot. 
And finally, God called you. His Spirit spoke to you and convicted you of sin and showed you your need for a Savior. He gave you the grace that you needed so that you could call upon the name of the Lord and be saved. And it's because God created you and formed you and redeemed you and called you that He could then say to Israel and He can also say to you and to me at the end of verse 1, notice these words, you are mine. If God did all of these things in verse 1, He has the right to make that claim. Sometimes you will see a restaurant, and outside of the restaurant, there will be a sign that says, Under New Ownership. Under New Ownership. Now, what's the point of that sign? Simply to inform people that there's a new name on the deed? Well, no. The point is that the restaurant has a new owner, and it is different and better as a result. They are saying the food is better than it used to be. And they're saying that the environment is more welcoming than it used to be. They are perhaps saying that the plates are cleaner than they used to be. But everything is different. And likewise, it's as if there's a sign on every born-again child of God that says, under new ownership. Paul said to the Corinthians, you are not your own. You were bought with a price. And so when you understand this, it changes everything. When you hear God say, you are mine, it changes your priorities. It changes how you live. It changes how you see all of life. And all of a sudden, that puzzle that we talked about earlier, it starts to make a little more sense. And so the first part of this God-centered life is that I recognize God's ownership of my life. But then also, I need to see God's intervention in my life. I need to see God's intervention in my life. Look at verse 2. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overflow you. When you walk through the fire... You shall not be burned, nor shall the flame scorch you. This is one of the most beautiful statements in all of the Bible, isn't it? Unfortunately, it is taken out of context, I don't know, about 90% of the time. I have seen preachers and heard preachers who preached from this passage and who would point right here to verse 2 and say, if you just have enough faith... Or maybe some will say, if you just give me enough money, you won't have to suffer. You won't experience hardships. You won't experience prolonged sickness or poverty. And then they turn to verse 2 and say, because the river shall not overflow you and the fire shall not burn you. Listen, that is not what verse 2 is saying. In fact, in this verse, God is telling Israel that the waters of exile will not destroy them. The fires of exile will not destroy them, but instead will refine them. He wants them to know that their present trial that they are going through is the tool that God is going to use to make them who He wants them to be and bring them where He wants them to be. 
And once again, God is talking to Israel about a very specific context, and we need to acknowledge that. And at the same time, this is true for the waters and the fires of tribulation in our lives as well. In fact, you will notice in verse 2 that God does not say, if you pass through waters, does he? He does not say, if you walk through the fire. No, it says when. When you pass through the waters, when you walk through the fires, there is this assumption that we're going to have to pass through some deep waters and we're going to have to walk through some fires in life. And so the promise here is not that we're going to escape troubles in life. If only we have enough faith. No, the promise is that we will experience God's presence and God's power and God's activity in the midst of those troubles. And there's nothing the, the, the trial in your life can do that will hinder or alter God's plans and purposes for your life. Look at verse 3. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I gave Egypt for your ransom, Ethiopia and Saba in your place. Now, what exactly does this mean? In what sense did God pay Egypt as a ransom or Ethiopia or Saba? Well, if you understand the context of Isaiah 53, this refers to how God would hand these nations over to Persia Israel was conquered by the Babylonians, but then Persia would rise up. God hands these nations, all of these nations, over to Persia. Why? So that Persia and Cyrus would then free the Israelites from exile. In this sense, God was paying these nations as a ransom. Now, talk about intervention. Think about what he's saying. The fact that God is willing to orchestrate history on behalf of his people. The fact that God is willing to raise up and tear down nations on behalf of his people. What peace we will enjoy and what confidence we will possess when we begin to see God's intervention in our lives. So God tells Israel how he has intervened on their behalf, and we need to see how God regularly intervenes on our behalf. Part of this God-centered life is I need to see God's intervention in my life. But then there's another thing I want you to notice. I need to receive God's appraisal of my life. I need to receive God's appraisal of my life. There's something that God says about Israel that is true about us in the New Testament as well. Look at verse 4. Since you were precious in my sight, you have been honored, and I have loved you. Therefore, I will give men for you and people for your life. What an incredible statement. This is why God was willing to do what he did in verse 3. This is why God was willing to raise up and tear down nations on behalf of Israel. Why? Because he says that his people are precious to him. 
because he loves them. So he honors them. And please understand, it's not Israel's intrinsic worth that forces God to say these things about them. No, it's not about who they are. It's about who God is. It's not about their performance. It's about His character. And it is because of who He is that He sees in them that which is precious and honorable. You know, as a father, I've been a father for 20 years, and I can still remember some of the things I said before becoming a father, which let's just say I would no longer agree with moms, dads. Do you know what I'm talking about? Can you remember some things maybe that you said back then that you would not say now? I remember before I became a dad saying something, and um, uh, now this is going to sound horrible, but remember it was 20 years ago, all right, a little bit of mercy, but I can remember before I became a dad, I would have told you that I had never seen a newborn baby that I believed to be beautiful. I thought babies became beautiful three or four weeks after they were born, after they went through that whole birth process. People would show me their pictures of their newborn son or, or daughter and say, look at this beautiful child. And I would just kind of, you know, nod in agreement and say, yes, that's, that's, a, that's a beautiful baby you have there. But um, I, I'd never seen a, a newborn baby that I thought was beautiful until March 30th. 2004, when my firstborn child arrived, Brenda, and let's just say that when I looked at her for the very first time, I said to myself, what is this? I've never seen anything so beautiful in all of my life. And then it happened a second time. Then it happened a third time. Then it happened a fourth time. What happened? Well, what happened was she was mine. And because she was mine, I could not look at her in the same way anymore. I could not look at her in the same way that I looked at other children. I just couldn't. There's a sense here. There's a sense in which God looks at those who belong to him, and he says, you are precious, you are honorable, you are loved. And again, let me remind you where the Israelites were when God said this about them. They were in captivity because of their great sin, because they'd done evil, because God was judging the land. And yet it's while they're in captivity that God says to them, you're precious, I honor you, I love you. This is not what God says about us if we have it all together. This is not what God says to us unless we mess up. This is what God says about His children because they are His children even when He is disciplining them. And because He loves us, yes, He does discipline us. 1 John 3, 1 says, Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us, that we should be called the what? Children of God. 
part of this God-centered life is receiving God's appraisal of my life. And part of this God-centered life is I need to know God's purpose for my life. I need to know God's purpose for my life. Look at verse 5. Fear not, for I am with you. I will bring your descendants from the east and gather you from the west. I will say to the north, give them up. And to the south, do not keep them back. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth. Now, the Israelites were in captivity initially in Babylon. Babylon was not to the north. Babylon was not to the south. It was not to the west. Babylon was to the east. And yet notice what God says, whether you're in the north, south, east, or west, wherever you are, God says, even to the ends of the earth, I will bring you back because I can and I will restore you. Now, it's so good to know there's never a place from which God cannot restore his people. Wherever you are and however you got there, yes, God can restore you. He can restore the joy of your salvation. He can restore your marriage. He can restore your family, the relationships in your life. He can restore your finances or your health. Even if, like these Israelites, it is your failure that brought you to where you are, even then, yes, God can restore you. Now, notice how this leads into verse 7. Everyone who is called by my name, that's to whom the previous statement applies. Everyone who is called by my name, whom I have created, for my glory, I have formed him. Yes, I have made him. Now notice, this is the reason why God restores Israel. God restores Israel, he says in verse 7, because he created her, get this, for my glory. For my glory. Now, this is why God created Israel, because he's speaking here to Israel. And yet, this is also why God created us. Ephesians 1 says that we exist for the praise of God's glory. And it is amazing to me how many people uh, simply do not know the purpose of their lives, how many Christians even forget the purpose of their lives. We were not created for our own pleasure. We were not created for our happiness. We are not created. We do not exist simply to accumulate stuff or climb the ladder of worldly success. We exist. We were created for God's glory. We exist to glorify Him. And God will not stop. He'll never stop promoting His glory in the lives of His people. In fact, we need to understand that everything God does in our lives, ultimately He does for that purpose. Do you understand that He saves us so that His love might be displayed? He forgives us so that His mercy 
might be displayed. When God provides for us, it's so his generosity might be displayed. When God uses us, it's so his power is displayed. Even when God disciplines us, he does so so that his holiness might be displayed. God does all of these things to put His glory on display in our lives. Everything God's doing in your life today is for that purpose. Everything God creates is for His glory. Psalm 19 says that the heavens declare the glory of God. This applies to everyone, including the child in its mother's womb. That child exists for God's glory. The newborn baby exists for God's glory. The handicapped person exists for God's glory. Marriage exists for God's glory. The man or woman on their deathbed, even they exist for God's glory and can still in that state bring glory to God. And because this is true, there's one question that we've got to ask ourselves again and again and again. How can God's glory be displayed in my life? Before every decision that we make, before every action that we take, what can I say? What can I do? How can I act in such a way that God's glory would be put on display in my life? To live the God-centered life, you need to know and you need to remember and you need to remind yourself regularly what is your purpose? What is God's purpose for your life? One more thing I want you to notice in this passage. I must display God's supremacy in my life. I must display God's supremacy in my life. Look at verse 8. Bring out the blind people who have eyes and the deaf who have ears. Now, when God says, I want you to bring out certain people, he's actually using legal terminology in the Hebrew, and it is as if in these next couple of verses, God is calling certain people to the stand in his courtroom in order to testify on his behalf. It's as if God is saying, I'm getting ready to reveal to you this great truth But I want you to know that there are those who are spiritually blind and there are those who are spiritually deaf and yet even they know and even they can testify as to these things. He takes it a step further in verse 9. Let all the nations be gathered together and let the people be assembled. Who among them can declare this and show us former things? Let them bring out their witnesses that they may be justified or let them hear and say, it is truth. It's not just the blind and the deaf of Israel God is calling to the stand. It's not just the Israelites who already know what God is getting ready to tell them. God says, the nations know this truth that I'm about to reveal to you. They may repress it. They may deny it. But God says deep down, they know it. They know that it is true. Well, okay, at this point, our appetite is getting wet, right? At this point, we're starting to get curious, and we're wondering, okay, what is this truth that God is going to reveal, this life-changing truth that he says even the spiritually blind and the deaf know, even the nations know? Verse 10, you are my witnesses, says the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, and here it is, that you may know and believe me 
And understand that I am He. Before me no God was formed, nor shall there be after me. God said there's something that that He wants them to know intellectually. There's something He wants them to believe. So this is an act of the will in which we place our faith in Him. There's something God wants them to understand. That means we allow this reality to really sink in and affect every area of our lives. Okay, what is that reality? That I am He, God says. The simple fact that He is the I am, the self-existent one. That he is the everlasting God. That he is the only God. And all of the idols of men are false. Notice God says, there was no God before me. There was no God after me. And I want to point out, this poses a very big problem to those in certain belief systems, certain cults who believe that Jesus is a separate God, a lesser God whom God created at some point in time. Verse 10 eliminates that possibility. God says, I alone am God. There is no other God. There was no God before me, nor will there ever be another God after me, period. Look at verse 11. I, even I, am the Lord. In other words, God says, Baal is not God. Marduk, as some of them had worshipped, is not God He's telling them Ishtar is not God. None of these deities that the nations serve are God. And by the way, the same can be said today if you really understand this book and what it has to say about God and His character and who God is and God's attributes. You will quickly discover that the God of the Bible is not like any of the gods of the world. He's not the God of Islam or Buddhism or Hinduism or any other man-made religion. He is God alone. There's no God like Him, and there's no God but Him. And it's because the first part of verse 11 is true that the second half of verse 11 just flows naturally, and besides me, there is no Savior. If there is one God and only one God, that means there is no one else, no other Savior for us to turn to. No one else who is able to offer us forgiveness or salvation or eternal life. And as we think about that statement, when God says, besides me, there is no Savior, let me remind you of this. In the New Testament, Jesus is called Savior Not one time, not two times, but 24 times. When he was born, the angel said, Today the Savior has been born. The woman at the well called him the Savior of the world. Paul told the Philippians, We eagerly await our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. 1 John 4, 14 says the Father sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. Now, if there is only one God, and only God is Savior, and Jesus is 
Savior. It is because Jesus is God. And Jesus, as the Son of God, as the second member of the Trinity, He is the means by which God saves the world. It is through Jesus' life that God Himself kept the law on our behalf, the law which He Himself gave. It is through Jesus' death that God Himself paid the debt, the price for our salvation. It is through Jesus' resurrection that God Himself won the victory over death and the grave for you and for me. It is because Jesus, because He lived and He died and He rose again, that He is Savior. Look at verse 12. I have declared and saved, I have proclaimed, and there was no foreign God among you. Therefore you are my witnesses, says the Lord, that I am God. In other words, you may have turned to these false gods in the past, but you knew this all along. Verse 13, indeed, before the day was, I am He, and there is no one who can deliver out of my hand, I work, and who will reverse it? Before the day was, in other words, before the beginning of time, God was the I am. He has always been, and he always will be. And because that is true, it says no one can deliver out of my hand. No one can reverse it. In other words, God cannot be stopped. God cannot be overturned. And God cannot be vetoed. I'm so glad that's true. And what we have here in verses 10 through 13 is this beautiful doxology just describing the greatness and the majesty of God. And the point of it all is not just that we would know certain things about God with our minds. Yes, that's good. Yes, that's important. But when God says in these verses, I am he, I am God alone. There is no other God. There never was before me. There never will be another after me. That means there must be this singular devotion in our lives. That means that God must be supreme in all of life. And when we understand the supremacy of God in all of life, you know what that does for us? I mentioned that puzzle earlier. You see, I still have God as the center of my life. But when I see and when I understand the supremacy of God in all of life, I understand that God is more than just one piece. I see him in every piece. I see my work as being a means of serving God. I see morality as something that is determined by God. Uh, I, I see my time and my money as ways to invest in the kingdom of God. When I think of my health, I think of my body as the temple of God. And all of a sudden, I understand God is more than just one piece of the puzzle. Now, He's the piece that defines every piece. And we find out that the whole picture, once we put it all together, that it's all about Him. And it's about making us like Jesus. This is the life that God's offering you today. 
And let me tell you, it's so much greater than anything the world has to offer you. Would you join me for a moment as we pray? Our Lord and our God, we thank you for this encouraging passage. We thank you that you spoke through Isaiah to a generation that had not yet been born. And yet you spoke not only to that generation of Israelites, but you speak also to us as the church, as your covenant people. We thank you that you look at us and you say you are mine that we are precious, that you would find anything honorable in us, that you love us, how can it be? And God, we thank you that you did all of these things for us so that we would know you and know you personally and so that we would live for your glory. Because it is only when we live for your glory that we experience the greatest peace, the greatest joy in life. And Father, I can't help but think that there are probably some here today who have heard this message, and maybe for some of them, there's still that missing peace right there in the middle. We understand that there is that God-sized void, that God-sized hole in the heart of every man, woman, boy, and girl. And there's no one and nothing in this world that can fill it but you. We thank you, God, that you made it possible for us to know you personally by sending Jesus, who is the Savior of the world, who died and rose again so that all who believe in him would be saved. Father, I pray if there are any here today who need to be saved, that this would be that day that they call upon you, that this would be their born-again moment. And God, I pray that you would help all of us to take what we've heard and apply it to our lives so that we would not relegate Jesus to just one corner, one room, one piece of the puzzle, that we would see all of life as falling under the lordship of Christ so that we would see all of life as being about we want to serve you with every part of our being. And we thank you, God, for all of these things in Jesus' name. As we continue to pray for just a moment, I would just ask you, is there any area of your life right now that you need to surrender afresh and anew to the Lordship of Jesus Christ? Have you done like some people? and said, well, I've got my God piece right here in the middle, but that has nothing to do with all of those other pieces of the puzzle, all of the other parts of my life. No, that's not how it works. God is supreme over every area of your life. It all points to Him. It's all about Him. Is there an area of your life right now that you just need to surrender to Him afresh and anew and say, say God, I want you to be supreme over every area. I want you to rule over every area of my life so that in every part of my life you would receive glory. If so, I would encourage you even now in the silence of your heart just to voice that to the Lord and surrender that to Him. But if you're here this morning and there is that missing piece, you do not have that relationship with God through Jesus Christ, then I would just ask you even now to, to, to call upon Him and say, Jesus, I, I, I know that I'm a sinner. I've broken your law. 
I've done things I know I shouldn't have done. Oh, but Jesus, I know you died for me. I know you rose again. I believe in you. I trust in you. Save me right now. I turn from my sin and declare Jesus is Lord of my life. Right now, he'll forgive you. Right now, he'll save you. Right now, you can be born again. Just take these next few moments, and in the silence of your heart, whatever God puts on your heart, would you just voice that to the Lord?